Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful as we have gathered together. Thou has given us a beautiful day that we can set aside our cares and our concerns and the distractions of this world and be able to look into thy word unhindered, be able to fellowship and commune with those of like-minded, precious faith, and be encouraged by our being together. And Father, we know that as we have gathered, we are open to a special blessing to those that come in fear and trembling and truth, desiring to know thee and to fellowship with thee more and to take the opportunity to worship thy name and glorify thee. And we have done this already in song this morning. And now, Father, we invite thee in our midst. We pray that thy word would be living, that it would be able to speak to every heart that is present. Father, we have gathered because we believe it is truth, thy word is truth, and that each of us need it to varying degree, depending on where we are in our lives. And so, Father, we ask thee, speak to us, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With the Lord's help, I'd like to read from the second letter to, of Peter, Peter's second letter, beginning in ch with chapter Peter 1. Second Peter, chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. 
For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. I have read through verse 14. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Our great and loving Heavenly Father, we deeply desire to know Thee, to know Thee in the power of Thy resurrection, a power that can transform us from our lives that are shallow, that are shameful, to lives that are meaningful and give glory to Thee. Father, we pray for the grace to grow in that knowledge, even as we have read this morning, and that we may reflect with greater clarity thy Son, Jesus Christ, in his perfection, in his beauty, in his love, in his sacrifice, even as he has drawn us to you through his perfect example. Lord, we pray that many more would come to know in this world of much distraction, confusion, and depravity, that there is truth and peace as we look to thy heavenly thought, to thy heavenly truths and to thy grace and to, as we can know, as we can take this time aside from hectic schedules, from busyness and in quietness to contemplate, fearlessly to look inside and see the secret things, to let thy spirit examine us and to fearlessly be willing to to leave behind those things that only bring thee shame and us as well. Father, we pray that thou purge us and perfect us and help us to be a city on a hill, a light that so many more who are wandering, who really don't know that there is a hope for eternity, who don't know that they can face that eternity with confidence, even with joy, even as many of our beloved brothers and sisters in this past two, three weeks have faithfully gone before us. Lord, we pray that many more would know and be ready to step into that eternity 
having already known thee, and to know they are walking into thy everlasting and loving arms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As it was mentioned in the prayer, we've had a few funerals very recently. And I don't know about you, but for me, funerals are a time of contemplation, a time of reflection, looking inward to see the end of someone's life, to perhaps weigh the impact of that life upon others. And to know that for sure, we will one day be there as well. I also think about, as we were in Brother Jarko's funeral service, what the directors of the funeral home think as they hear our message, perhaps the prayers, as they are present at the internment and hear our singing and the prayers that are given at that point. I'm sure that they hear many. They see many different things. In fact, that very day when I was rushing from work to be early at the funeral home in order to perhaps spend some quiet time, and I didn't stop. I, I knew that we would be having a funeral service, and so we would be in the chapel downstairs, but I... I assume perhaps the family would be still upstairs and I ran upstairs and they weren't up there but there was a, a much different celebration going on upstairs with with alcoholic beverages and so forth and it made me really reflect of how how different people different cultures look at death and the departing of a, of a loved one for us who believe in Jesus Christ and believe in and the living God, we believe that the departing of a loved one is, is, is a fulfillment of someone's lifelong longing to be with his Lord. For someone who is recently converted or baptized, someone who has recently experienced a changed life by coming to know Jesus Christ, such a person doesn't think about death, thinks more about service, about, if you will, paying back to God for God's grace and goodness and mercy, the mercy and love that God has bestowed on that individual. That individual feels a sense of indebtedness, a, uh, a desire to, to give back to God through their service, through their life. And they're not thinking about death, they're thinking about the immediate time, how they can serve God. But as we live on, and as we age, death becomes more and more of a thought that reoccurs in our minds. So as I listened and I contemplated on the things that were being said, one message that came to me was, we have to make our lives count. It has to count. We have a brief time here on earth, and that time is not of our doing. It's not our choice. We don't dictate how long we're going to be on earth. We don't even control our health. 
as much as we think we do. And the Bible tells us that God has set those bounds in our lives. He has, he has already determined how long each of us, each of you and I, will live here on earth. And we don't know what that is. And he has also given us a purpose. So the, the life here that is lived out isn't a life that should be lived out selfishly in order to satisfy our wants and desires. And in every generation, in every period of man, in the civilization of man, there will be very different things that will drive man's desires and will um, dictate what he will give himself to or give her, herself to in this world. But there's one thing God requires of us. And he requires us to worship him and to serve him while we have life and breath. So we need to make our life count. It has to be worthwhile. And there are a variety and myriad of, of options in this world to suggest to anyone that your life can count depending on which, which path you take. And it all depends also on our personalities. It depends on our upbringing. It depends on which family you were born, which societal ranking you were in, or what country you live in. I, I just, going back to history, I would say, had I stayed in South America and in Venezuela, I wonder what kind of life I would have had, what kind of person I would have become. But God gave me the opportunity. My mother, being very brave, took two children at an early age, speaking no English, to a foreign country, hoping that in doing so, she would provide for them a better future. And here we are. How do we make our life count? And what is it that God requires of Christians? And is Christianity really an option that the world may look at and contemplate and consider? As I said earlier, we have so many options. The world today, because of technology and information, you can search in the internet anything that would tickle your fancy or would attract your attention. There is, it's inexhaustible almost, the things that we could pursue in this world. But yet, God expects that as a Christian, or as a faith, Christianity would offer the greatest, the greatest answer, would offer the greatest attraction to man who is sincerely seeking to answer the question, how do I make my life count during the brief period that I have here on earth? It should be Christianity that offers the greatest allurement, that offers the greatest sense of satisfaction, that offers the answers that could fulfill to, to the fullest your desire to make your life count. It should be Christianity. And I guess the question before us this morning, is it Christianity? Has Christianity done a fair job of presenting itself as the one that offers the right answer the best answer and the only real answer to the question, how do I make my life count? 
We read here in this chapter, this is the second letter. It is understood to be the second letter by Peter to believers. And he speaks and he uses terminology here that perhaps may be a little bit archaic. But one thing he says, he says that according to God's divine power, God has given us, meaning Christians, all things that pertain unto life and godliness. In other words, it is completely accessible to us who call ourselves Christians to be able to have, through God's power, divine power, everything necessary for us to live a godly life and to, in fact, be godly. It says not only that, but it says, through the knowledge of him that had called us to glory and virtue, or that by, by means of his own glory and virtue had called us. And it says here, whereby are given unto us, unto Christians, are given exceeding great and precious promises. Now, when the Bible uses words like exceeding great, it's trying to drive a point home that it isn't just ordinary promises, but these promises are so great that we can't even use a language, words in our own, in our own language, in order to fully fully comprehend and fully describe the greatness of his promises toward us. One of these promises leads us, or these promises lead us, that we should be partakers of a divine nature, or here as we have a definite article, the divine nature, meaning that we should be like God. We should be, Christians should be like their father. In another scripture, in another point in the Bible, it says that you should be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. And that doesn't mean that, that, that we are flawless or that we don't make mistakes or that we don't sin. The word oftentimes in the, in the scripture that is, that where the word perfect is used, many times it's used to represent a sense of completeness. But when it says that we should be perfect like our Father, that means we should be very much spiritual like our Father. And that despite the fact that we live in the flesh, in, in, in skin and bones, and that we reside here on earth with everybody else, that we're, we don't have a, a, we're not a spirit living in, 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 in a spiritual realm, but in fact we are still in the flesh. Despite that, God says that we need to partake, be part of the divine nature, God's divine nature in the way we live, in the way we act. And that having, that we do this because we have escaped, it says here, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The Bible tells us that, that there is corruption in the world. That and, and man may find this offensive, but without God's influence here on earth, if man was given full control and allowed to take their free course, what would man do to himself? What would man's society become like? How would, how would man turn this world in, would it turn it into a, a utopia? We know that many times men have sought out you know, the United Nations or the, was the beginning of, of this idea after World War II that we would, 
we would be able to prevent such wars if we all united, if we all signed up to a charter of, of rights and freedoms and liberties for individuals. We know that that didn't work. And we know that in general, nothing has worked. Nothing on earth has worked as far as bringing man to a state of compliance with God's expectations. In the world, there is corruption. And the Bible says that, that the corruption in the world comes through lust. And the word lust here means simply desire. In fact, the, almost in every instance of the New Testament where the word lust is used, it literally simply means desire. And desire of itself is not bad. There's nothing wrong with desire. The Bible tells us in, in one of the verses that we often, we don't often, but that we refer to, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And in those words, lust, we can 100% uh, accurately substitute for the word desire. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, and the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. There's nothing wrong with desire. We may um, have an affinity or, or an attraction to, to, to someone else of the opposite sex, and it may very well be God's intent for us, and there may be a desire that arises from that, which is completely normal. Um, we, we choose an object. We may choose furnishings in our homes based on what our eyes, what appeals to our eyes, the desires of our eyes. Um, and we may choose a, a vocation, a career, a profession that, that, that we desire. There's nothing wrong with the word desire. So we know that when the word lust is used in the New Testament, it is talking about things that are just beyond the normal. It's when we allow the flesh to take its full course. We see the perversion in the world. We see that when we, as the scripture says, in fact, the scripture speaks a lot about this. Gives an example, James, the letter of James says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that the war in your members? Ye desire and have not, or ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own lusts. Here's an example of, of, of a situation in, in, in the setting is those who are desiring something uh, with a great, great desire. Many times the word concupiscence is used in, in the New Testament. And concupiscence can be translated to mean an intense desire for something God would not have you to have. Something that would not be healthy. 
And it can be very of itself if it can be completely uh, innocuous, it can be completely innocent. But if it's something that is not going to be good for you specifically, and you can't depart from it, you can't somehow separate your heart from it, but your heart is attached to it, and when you desire it and you can't have it and it begins to change you and you ask for it and you don't receive it, the Bible says here, because you ask amiss. In other words, you're asking with the wrong intentions. You're, ask, you're missing the mark as far as God's concerned for asking because you're asking in order to use it to consume it upon your own desires as opposed to use it for the welfare of not yourself, not just yourself, but others. And then there's the opposite example. And we may say that that may be somebody who um, doesn't have the, 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 the wherewithal or the means financially, let's say, in order to, to, to acquire what they want. And the person may become very frustrated. The flip side of that is those who have the means and can acquire whatever their appetite uh, proposes to them. And they acquire it. And the Bible says that for those, they, they, they can ensnare themselves. They fall into hurtful lusts that war against the soul. In other words, when we allow desires, when they become more than something that is needed but becomes a want, a want that we can't somehow satisfy, and that it begins to overtake us or that we feel very free because we have the means in order to satisfy that want immediately these things have a corrupting nature they have a corrupting effect in the long run and possibly in the short run in our lives and the writer Peter himself is saying that these things we have to if we are to partake of a divine nature we have to escape these things we have to get away from what's in the world. How then does Christianity, how does it display a divine nature? Has Christianity done a good job of presenting itself, and not only presenting itself, but actually living out a life that that one can rightfully say that is godliness, that is holiness, that one who maybe doesn't have any religious upbringing can, can, can identify the individual, the person, the Christian, as someone that is different, that is living out a life that is divine, is, has a, a nature that, is, that goes beyond the normal in this world. Now, it gives us it gives us a set of instructions here on how that is to be. But the Bible tells us that we heard recently in, in, in our baptism, the baptism we had recently, that God, as this church was transformed when we renovated this building, and if you were, you were here before and you saw what the building looked like and you didn't come at all during the one year where all the work was being done in this church and then you came after and you saw the complete transformation, you would say, wow. And it, the, the analogy was made that that's exactly what God does in the life of an individual. That God, God completely transforms the life of an individual. And the, the Bible tells us that when he does that, he, he, he is like a workman. 
he creates new from old and it says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works so God God does this and he he builds us up he 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 starts from from the 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 original position that we're in the life before we knew God into to completely transform us into a life that now a person that whose mind has been changed whose heart has been cleansed by the blood of Christ we become the temple of God the Holy Spirit resides in us and from there on we are transformed for the very purpose of working for God and for fulfilling his will and in doing so if we did that we would offer the world if we truly did that we would offer the world the alternative to making our life count in verse 20 of the same chapter it says we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone so we have been we have been completely recreated we have been completely transformed by God and now we are we are expected to go forward and live out our lives for him so God calls us to become builders we had a recent Bible discussion in our church recently that um, brought this point home for we are all laborers together this is in 1st Corinthians chapter 3 for we are all laborers together with God ye are God's husbandry ye are God's building husbandry meaning that we are the the cultivated field we are the farm if you will using normal we are God's God has worked us worked us as a field he's he's he sowed his seed of truth and he's watered it and, and, and he has completely brought in a new, a new plant. We are that. We are God's building, it says. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, this is Apostle Paul speaking, I have laid the foundation, and we heard that that foundation, the foundation of the apostles, of the prophets, of Jesus Christ, the foundation of truth. Apostle Paul laid that foundation down whenever he preached the word of God to, to all the new churches, to all the places that he evangelized. He laid down the foundation of truth that is based on Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone of that foundation. He says, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. So as, G, as Apostle Paul brought news to, the, to wherever, whatever region of, of Europe or Asia Minor that he, that he evangelized, he laid the foundation of truth and he went on to continue his missionary journey. And there would be others that would follow after him and would continue the work of the ministry, of preaching, of bringing the truth to those who heard the truth. It says, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed. In other words, watch, be careful how you build upon that foundation that was laid. Then he goes on to say, and if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he had built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. 
If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. The immediate context here, this warning, if you will, is given to ministers, is given to all those that labor and proclaim the truth and, and build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's the immediate context. He is saying that be careful, you who are given the responsibility to preach the word of God, be careful how you do it, be careful that it produces the right consequence and effect, be careful that you don't alter it. And it says, and how you do it will be described by the materials you use to build upon this foundation. You can build with gold, you can build with silver, precious stones, or you can choose inferior material, wood, hay, stubble. And it says that whatever you build, whatever you use, whatever materials you use to build upon this foundation, as a minister of God, as one that preaches the word of God, the very things you preach and minister will be tried. It may be tried within the individuals that hear it. It may be tried collectively within that group of people that, that hear it. The, the very works you do will be tried, and it says, as if by fire. The fire will declare what kind of work it was. And if the work was done with inferior materials that will not withstand the fire, it will burn away. But those that choose to build with the right material, the, the fire, it will withstand the fire, and that person who built, who labored with the right material, will receive a reward. For the person who, who chose to build with inferior materials, in other words, was not careful how he built on that foundation. It says here that the fire will burn it up, and he himself will suffer loss. In other words, he won't he will suffer the loss of a reward had he labored appropriately, had he labored with the right materials. Now this immediate context, as I said, is for the ministers, for those that labor in the word of God. But that doesn't mean that it's not for us. It's not for everyone else that's a Christian. We are asked to build... In fact, in Peter, Peter says, You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, or, in other words, in, in, the, in, our, in our English, it would be, are being built up. We are living stones, or lively stones, we are living stones, each one of us, each Christian is a living stone, and we are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to do what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable unto God. So we see here that we are all called to be builders, and that in order to make our life count, God has asked us to build that we are individually, the way we live our lives as Christians, we are building, we're being built up as a spiritual house so that we would become like priests, like the Old Testament priests that would come before God and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and for ourselves. Well, what kind of sacrifices are we offering? What is it that God asks of us? 
And are the sacrifices essential? Do they help us become partakers of a divine nature? And do they help reflect the, the answer that the world is looking for? Because everyone is really looking for it. Ultimately, the truth is that every single individual in this life that, that has enough, whose, whose mind is clear, whose mind is clear, wants to make their life meaningful wants to have meaning in their life. Nobody just goes on living. People, sooner or later, they begin to weigh what's going on. So what kind of sacrifices are we as a royal priesthood supposed to be giving? In Romans 12 it says, I beseech you therefore, I entreat you, I beg you, I am asking of you, Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So it gives a qualification here what kind of sacrifice Christians are supposed to give. And if Christians did this, there would be a differentiation. In other words, we would be different than the rest of the world. In doing so, we would, it would help us escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. It says here that we are to be a living sacrifice, we are to be a holy sacrifice, and that it has to be acceptable unto God. And on top of all that, if we do these things, it is our, it says here, our reasonable service. This is what God expects of Christians. After God has, by the death of his son and resurrection, transformed us, it's not that we live out our lives for our own desires. And that's how we put things in perspective. Because the perspective is, God redeemed us from this world not for our own selfish good, but that we may glorify him and offer a, a solution and an answer to the world who is seeking a solution and an answer. And so we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. How would you experience this in your life? How do we bring it to our everyday application? How do you live out a living sacrifice? How is it holy? How do you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God? That is what God requires of you. I want to read a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he said, I have heard thee in the time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored or supported, helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And it says here, as ministers, and this applies to all of us, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. So this is the beginning of how we would live out and present our bodies as living sacrifices. That the way we live out our lives, we would give no offense to the ministry. In other words, we wouldn't do something that would speak badly 
about Christianity, about our faith, about our God, that would, would bring shame to God and would cause to dilute the effect of trying to be a light in this world. It says, but in all things, but we, we don't want to do that, but in all things, we approve ourselves as the ministers of God. In other words, we examine ourselves, like the Bible says, whether we really are in the faith, whether we really are living a holy life, acceptable, a living sacrifice to God. And we, we determine, approving ourselves means that we've examined ourselves and we've determined that we are approved before God. And that's not a, a presumptuous statement. That is, in fact, a requirement. God requires you and me to actually check ourselves whether we really are in the faith. You know, as a, as a professional engineer in, in, the, in the province of Ontario, I'm expected when I, if I stamp a work with my, my seal, the, the government expects me to exercise professionalism to the best of my, my ability and my talents, that when I'm doing something, I'm taking diligence to do it right, particularly if there's a safety for the public that is of concern. How much more God? And so when I'm doing some work and an engineering work in my everyday life, I have to make sure it is right. I double check, triple check, I go through my logic, I make sure that what is being done, and when I review the work by other engineers in my department, I do exactly the same thing. It is my responsibility, it is the expectation given to me as a professional engineer. So much more as a Christian. I need to approve myself daily that I am a living sacrifice for him. And, and Apostle Paul says, how do we do this? It says, in much patience. Exercising patience in, in afflictions. God is going to give you a difficult time. Because, because part of this transformation that happens once when God transforms your life into a Christian and he, and he, lays, it, he lays your life, it's built upon the, the foundation of truth, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, he then continues to transform you and renew, and renew your mind. It says, we read it, well maybe we didn't, Romans 12, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what happens when you and I continue to build this spiritual house, it's more like a renovation. There has to be some tearing down that takes place before we can build something new. And while God changed us, and as we grow, we begin to discover more of ourselves. Things that we probably couldn't handle at the very beginning when God called us. But God wants us to become like his son, Jesus Christ. He wants us to become partakers of the divine nature of God. And when he does that, he has to tear down the things in our lives that are in the way. And he has to build up new things in our lives in order for us to become more like Jesus Christ. That is the transformation and the renewing process that happens. And he does this through patience. He does this through afflictions. He does this through necessities and distresses. He puts you in situations where you have a need, where, where you feel constrained, where, where you can't satisfy your, everything you want. Because remember that if we, just, if, we, if we had every means to satisfy our desires, we would become corrupt like the rest of the world. And God doesn't want that. So he's going to give us afflictions and put us in positions where we have need, where we have to go beyond ourselves and reach out for help, where we will feel distress, where we will have to call upon God. In stripes, where we will feel pain, where we will 
suffer for him in imprisonments well that has happened in the past it may happen in the future in labors in watchings in fastings by pureness by knowledge by long suffering by kindness by the holy ghost by love unfeigned by the word of truth by the power of god by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left you see this that's how god wants us to build the spiritual house he does it by tearing down the things in our lives that are in the way. And in doing so, he puts us in a position where we have to reach out for him. And we have no other choice if we want to grow. We have no other choice but to embrace the opportunity to be divine and to walk holy lives and to be a living sacrifice. You cannot do this of yourself i cannot do this god has to do it in us but when god begins to do it in us we have to be willing to let the perfect work let patience have her perfect work in us may the lord bless his word amen Him 278, the first three verses.
brother, please lead us in a word of prayer. Brother, please select the closing hymn.
187.
In closing, I'd like to read a few verses. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hills and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious or too religious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And had made of one blood all nations of man for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord. If happily, or perhaps, they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. God, and it doesn't really matter what is spoken at times from the pulpit. If someone is not feeling after God, and the word there, feeling, means to grope as if you're in a dark room and you're trying to find your way, and the analogy we can picture from this is that when man comes to his senses after tasting what the world has to offer and he's not satisfied, finds no fulfillment, can't find the answer to the question of making my life count, he is like a man in a dark room trying to find the answer. And he's, he's, he's groping with his hands on the floor and on the wall looking for uh, a point of reference, something that he can feel that can orient him to where he is in the room. But when the light of man, which is Jesus Christ, shines in that heart, as we heard today, that day becomes the acceptable day for that man to seek salvation. As we heard today also, God wants us to feel after him, to, to search for him, and to look for the answers of life in him. May we do that with all our heart. This concludes our service. Amen.